Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the OHBM uh, Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Today we're doing things a little bit differently. This is an introduction to the live podcast that was done uh, at OHBM during the OHBM meeting this summer. The topic of that uh, podcast uh, was a continuation of the discussion of the, the paper by Scott Merrick uh, on reproducible brain-wide association studies that require thousands of individuals. And it sort of set the stage for a lot of discussion about you know, what does this mean and what does this imply for how we do our research? Is it sort of a, uh, a statement that you can only make any state, any sort of conclusions from fMRI data that uh, unless you use thousands of subjects or uh, are there other ways of either getting around this or improving this? So um, in the previous podcast uh, that was released in season two, episode 21, I actually discussed this topic uh, with the authors uh, and it was a wonderful discussion. I recommend you listen to that. Uh, but in this uh, podcast, I discuss with some of the leaders in the field who, uh, whose research hinges very much on this paper and is related very much to this paper. These four people are Avram Holmes, who's an associate professor of psychology and psychiatry at Yale University, Katerina Gratan, who is an assistant professor of psychology at Northwestern University in Chicago, Paul Thompson, Professor and Associate Director of the USC Mark and Mary Stevens Neuroimaging and Informatics Institute, and Monica Rosenberg, who is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago. So it's a wonderful discussion. We're up on stage. Uh, there's some, uh, you, you might notice uh, in the middle of the podcast, I sort of edge closer to them because the acoustics were such that I I actually couldn't hear. I had a hard time hearing their their answers, even though you know the audience could hear just fine. But it, reflecting back, there was a lot of distortion. So, either way, um, uh, I had a lot of fun. We're hope to hopefully we'll be doing more of those uh, in the future, and I uh, hope you enjoy this one. Okay, this is something a little different. I'm used to doing this like in my uh, uh, office above my garage over Zoom. Unfortunately, uh, Damien Fair, uh, who was the, one of the senior authors of the paper, uh, couldn't make it today. So, uh, but we'll go ahead with the, uh, the, the four other people who are not on the paper, but who've, who've uh, uh, been doing work. So to start with uh, Avram Holmes. Uh, Avram is an associate professor of psychology and psychiatry at Yale University. Uh, his, research, his research focuses on large-scale network fingerprints associated with heritable traits. Katerina Gutan. Uh, is an assistant professor of psychology at Northwestern University in Chicago, and her research focuses on brain networks, their association with behavior, and modulation with TMS. Uh, she also wrote a really nice editorial in Neuron uh, responding to the Merrick paper, uh, suggesting two paths forward uh, in terms of reliability uh, and also focusing on consortium data and deep imaging of individuals. Uh, she had a special issue on that uh, uh, a while back as well. Uh, Paul Thompson is a professor and associate director of USC Mark and Mary Stevens Neuroimaging and Informatics Institute. 
he leads the Enigma project, uh, which is enhancing neuroimaging genetics through meta-analysis, and he, towards identifying associations between genetics and brain structure and function with disorders and aging. So obviously he's heavily invested in, in this type of work. Uh, Monica Rosenberg is an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago, and her focus is on differentiating individual traits, such as attention and recollect recollection, based on their large-scale patterns of brain activity. So they all do work sort of touching upon what, what this paper sort of uh, showed. And, and one thing that I, I want to start out with is uh, just not really going over the paper itself, but uh, just my own reactions, and I don't know if this was your reactions to the paper, and that is, um, uh, you know, initially when I heard about it coming out, uh, I thought, oh no, just a, another paper sort of, you know, kind of getting down on fMRI or whatever. But then I, I read the paper. I saw the title and it was kind of dramatic, but then I read the paper and it was a really outstanding paper. I, I really, uh, it was very measured and it was very carefully done. It was a huge amount of work. And, uh, and it actually kind of, to me, it sort of uh, drew the line in the sand in terms of what the state of the field is right now. And I think uh, there's many things the paper didn't say, but it also did mention at the end that fMRI is, is very sensitive for individual subjects looking at longitudinal studies or with modulations. And, and there's many different ways you can, you can go about things. And I think I'd like to bring out that, and along with talking about how you can make BWAS better. Um, so, so that was my impression. Then I saw, like, you know, there's a nature commentary that was, uh, I think, a little bit unfair. It's, you know, it was saying, you know, an explosive article, a, a bombshell article. And that wasn't, um, that wasn't too useful. Uh, because many people who are outside of the field just think it's a condemnation of the sensitivity of fMRI. And I think hopefully what will come out today is that this isn't about the sensitivity uh, or specificity of fMRI or even MRI, but it's more about the variability of, of people and, and, and the challenge of, of actually getting a handle on what are the useful features and, and uh, what are the differences, what's the variance. So with that, uh, I'd just like to open it up to our panelists and, and feel free to jump in and, and talk uh, about uh, anything. But I just want to start out by, by just asking you, when you read the paper, was there anything that uh, at the, you know, throughout the paper that jumped out, of you, out at you as sort of like, oh, that's not quite right, or, or maybe that should be expounded upon, uh, or maybe I should, you know, if I'm talking to, like for instance, my funders, should I, what should I say to them? if they read this paper and they want to cut my funding. Uh, <laughs> so feel free to, to start. Any, anyone uh, wants to jump in? Well, I'll start. Um, uh, we were talking about this up here on the stage before the podcast began, so I feel like it's an apt way to start this discussion. But one thing as I was reading the paper, um, you know, I think many people agree with the points in the paper. The paper is extremely rigorous, it's thorough, as Peter said, it's, it's written in a measured way. But one thing that struck me was the characterization of EWAS studies, and I was thinking to myself, like, is this a common way that people in the field analyze fMRI data? Do we do mass univariate whole brain correlations with functional connections and cortical thickness measures? Um, and my impression in the field is that people don't often do the kind of study that's termed BWAS, and so I think that um, a lot of the conclusions in the paper are relatively specific to this kind of mass univariate analysis, and so I think there's many things that we already do and we can do 
um, to build sort of robust relationships between brain features and behavior, particularly focusing on multivariate approaches, which the paper actually showed were much better than univariate approaches. And, and personally, I, I think that's more common in the field right now. I guess the, the sort of one caveat to that statement that I'd put in is that historically people have done um, univariate approaches focusing on specific circuits. And so I might be really interested in amygdala medial prefrontal connectivity, and I'll do a single isolated analysis focusing on that. Um, and when I do that, I think the, the Merrick paper is really useful because it can sort of um, set the expectations for the size of effects that we can observe if we look at any univariate relationship in the brain on an isolated phenotype, sort of in a one-off analysis. Um, and so for me, I think one of the things that was a bit, I'm, I thought the Merrick paper was incredibly nuanced and careful in the way that they framed their, um, the implications of their analyses. Um, I think part of the reaction or the overreaction I saw online are, are groups that are used to doing sort of one-off univariate analyses on isolated circuits. Um, because this paper does have a lot of implications for that style of analysis, um, you know, if you carry it through beyond the, the Merrick conclusions. Yeah, and I guess I, I would like to sort of just jump in on that and sort of, I don't think that the critical point is the mass univariate because for at least the initial analyses in the paper where they sort of established the range of correlations that you tend to get with these measures, somewhere around maybe 0 0.1, 0 0.15 um, at best, that was based on single univariate correlation. That's like the very tail of that distribution. So even if you're going after a single circuit, a single connection that you're interested in, if you're using these measures, you may not be, you, may, you shouldn't really expect necessarily to be doing better unless you have some other reason to think uh, that you're going to be doing a lot better than that. But I agree with the multivariate point. Still there, it seems like you need hundreds of subjects, not thousands perhaps, but that's still a lot of subjects for a single lab to, to collect. <laughs> Indeed. Also, I realize on the podcast you may not recognize our voices, so I'm Monica Rosenberg. <laughs> and I totally agree. However, if you're focusing on a subset of features or a single feature, the likelihood that you're going to get a correlation in those tails and, and sort of wildly over-interpret over that strong correlation is much lower. Um, and so I think there's sort of less of a chance that you're going to get an R value of 0 0.8, 0 0.9, right, if you're, if you're just looking at a a small suite or a single um, brain feature. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that's been said. I'm, I'm Paul Thompson, and, and uh, I, I just want to commend Katarina and Monica and Avram and Peter, you as well, for hosting this discussion because I think that, Peter, your reaction was the same as mine. I thought, wow, what, what, what a cool paper. I hope people interpret this in uh, a sensible way. And I think all of us can become articulate advocates for uh, brain mapping in general. Many of the papers that are iconoclastic, like the cluster failure paper or even the dead salmon paper, I mean, among friends, we say, hey, that's kind of cool. We'll use that to teach students to be careful. But I think if, if funders that are sort of extremely skeptical of the value of neuroimaging say, hey, well, uh, well it looks like you guys are going to have a, a, an uphill battle here, um, that's going to be tricky. So I think part of this, and I think, Peter, appreciate you, you uh, doing this, and I'm curious what the audience thinks, is to think about what situations uh, we might be in where power is limited and, and what we can do. And I know, Monica and, and Katarina, you've proposed some solutions. From our point of view with Enigma, where we do meta-analyses of studies, we've kind of 
diagnose three different situations. So one is where you have really good power. And so if you're looking at Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, ataxia, these are neurological disorders. I mean, we saw the Telerac lecture. He was treating people with Alzheimer's. He was showing data that were absolutely phenomenal in, in you know, four or five subjects. And I think all of us said, wow, don't, don't wait to have 10,000 subjects. That's re really exciting. So that's, that's case one where you're very well powered. It's a neurological study, big effect. The middle ground, I would argue, is, for example, in psychiatry, where you're looking at uh, maybe substance use, schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, PTSD, where you have moderate power. You might not have very much power to look at interactions like you know, interventional effects. Uh, you know, effects aren't always the same. If you go to another cohort, it might depend on the group's ancestry. There's a big call for diversity in neuroimaging studies. It might depend on the person's age or other things going on. So this is the middle ground situation where we got to be careful, maybe phone a friend, get, a, get another cohort. The third situation is maybe genetics. And so, I mean, we've done brain-wide, genome-wide association, which is kind of you know, the nightmare situation for, for power. And many of you who are working in imaging genetics are familiar with this. And I think that field has gone from not very rigorous to very rigorous, just through exactly papers like this, where we know genetic variants might account for about 1% of the variance in brain measures. I mean, outside of rare variants or, you know, fragile X or, you know, monogenic uh, syndromes, the, rare the common variants are very weak. So strategically, and I, I think Katerina and Monica, you've had, you've had very good suggestions for this, we know when we're in that third situation, and we're very, very careful. We usually do either meta-analysis or targeted replication of a finding that comes up in a discovery sample. Or for that matter, we're very uh, nuanced about what the effects might mean. So the Telerac lecture, I'd like to you know, focus on uh, uh, Andres Lozano, because he's doing something that is so phenomenally important. It's both important to be careful, but also not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I think he would be the first to say that those are preliminary studies, but we all got very excited about them. So my only recommendation would be is decide whether you're in situation one, two, or three, great power, moderate power, or hardly any. And then, I mean, we all know this. I mean, we can advocate for what types of methods uh, we prefer to use in each of those situations. So, hey, uh, um, I'm simply introducing ourselves to Avram Holmes, just so you can recognize my voice. Um, so Paul probably has a lot more expertise than, than I do in this area. Um, one of the really interesting things, though, watching the sort of BWAS explosion on social media is, is it, it reminds me of the um, evolution of candidate gene research, uh, particularly in clinical psychology, um, transitioning from small, relatively, relatively underpowered samples for candidate gene studies up to the sort of large-scale genome-wide association work that people are doing today. Um, along with the recognition in the genetics community that we were relatively underpowered in our samples looking at small effects, uh, came the requirement for publication for outsample replication. Um, so basically, it's impossible to publish a GWAS study now where you get some sort of hit unless you show in an independent data set that you get the same hits uh, and that the findings replicate. Um, we're starting to see this in systems-level human neuroscience, uh, particularly with these availability of large-scale data sets. And so, for instance, if I make a discovery in the human connectome data set, I'm going to try to replicate it in UK Biobank, HC, um, ABCD, one of the other available samples. Um, my expectation is that papers like the Merrick paper are now going to force this to the forefront, and so the publication requirements are likely going to evolve in response to these, these uh, types of findings, um, which I think is natural. They, sh they should evolve. They, sh they should um, acknowledge the relatively subtle effects that some of these predictive studies are looking at. Um, it's just a sort of, for people in the moment, it can seem kind of painful as you're going through it, which um, 
Paul can probably speak to, uh, the genetics community has gone through this relatively recently as well. Um, but for me, it's an exciting development as the field evolves and the publication standards kind of meet what we're actually seeing on the ground when it comes to the effect sizes we can observe. I think this also speaks to like, small samples are really important because they give us samples to validate our findings in. If we only had large samples funded by huge consortia with thousands of participants, we wouldn't actually have very many external test sets to validate models. And so these single lab samples can be discovery sets or they can be replication sets. And the other benefit of these small samples, I think, is that they have different phenotypic measures, which as a psychologist, you know, I'm interested in psychological processes that maybe committee who are, you know, establishing the tasks used in these large data sets are, don't also have interest in. And so there can be many behavioral measures. And I think replicating across independent data sets with different behavioral measures, testing similar underlying phenotypes can be really powerful because if I want to build a model that predicts working memory, I can be more confident in that model if it predicts performance on like a um, change detection task and a digit span task and an NBAC task, like all different, you know, slightly different measures or very different measures of working memory. And so sort of diversity of data sets in the field is really important. Yeah, and I I'm Katerina, by the way, for the folks listening online. I, um, I don't think I've introduced myself yet, but I'll, I'll, I, I agree with all of those points. And I do think it's important to emphasize that we do need the added flexibility of these smaller data sets to test a lot of the questions that I think are still open questions in the field that single consortia data sets are often just not set up to test. As we've seen in many of the large consortia data sets, they primarily collect REST, which I use a lot of my data and it's awesome, but there are a lot of questions you can't answer with resting state fMRI, you need task fMRI, you need to probe specific uh, cognitive concepts. And if we sort of move all of our funding to just fund these large consortia, we're giving up, I think, a, a major piece of the pie in terms of what we can look at. And, uh, before we settle in on, on the, the, the results of the paper, do you think, I mean, my first thought after I read the paper too is that, is that yes, there's, there's variability and, um, uh, and these studies are useful even the way they're presented, but do you think, I mean, I was thinking of immediately like all the potential problems in, uh, in the study itself in terms of, I mean, not their study, but like how it's done. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, spatial normalization, uh, you know, brains are very variable. Uh, uh, parcellation, should you have some sort of adaptable parcellation of some sort that, that, you know, you might be smearing out all kinds of uh, useful information as far as that's concerned. Um, even cleaning up the time series, they mentioned that, you know, there might be better ways of, of making a higher signal-to-noise time series. Or many people talk about dynamic connectivity. Is that more of a feature that you would want to pull out? So it seems that there's a lot you can do to improve things as far as that's concerned for these massive studies. And there's, it may just be that even after all of that's done, uh, there's true, you know, intersubject variability. That's interesting because it's, you know, it's people are variable. Um, and also, I don't know if you want to talk about this uh, a little bit more um, in terms of uh, properly dissecting the populations. I mean, based on their behavioral phenotypes. I mean, you're, you know, here they, they just kind of put against, you know, different measures of, you know, intelligence or uh, psychosis. Uh, is that the right way to do it? I mean, it seems that. If you maybe chop that up a little bit more finely, you can make better comparisons. I might jump in quickly to, on the first part of your question, and sort of thinking about how do we align across people. And we can do the best possible alignment we can with spatial techniques, and we still know that's not going to align functional areas very well, because those tend to vary relative to anatomical sort of 
um, landmarks. Um, and I think one really interesting paper that I think hints that that's going to be a, an important um, avenue to move forward with is actually from Jim Haxby's lab, Fei Long Ma was the first author in eLife last year, doing multivariate classification, I think with a human connectome project, and showing that when you use hyperalignment techniques, which align across people functionally, you get this really big boost in um, performance uh, prediction of these behavioral traits outside the scanner. So going from, I think it was something like 10 to 20% variance explained to up to like 30% variance explained. Yeah. Like hyperalignment, that's right. I mean, it seems uh, something like that could be tremendously helpful. Um, but also, I mean, even if you do align, keeping that information about what the variability is is also potentially a biomarker in itself. And so, yeah, I think uh, it's kind of intriguing. In some ways, you might have thought it would decrease the variance explained because you're taking away variance across people. But I think it's always critical to, like, I mean, think about the different sources of variance that we have in our data. And some are going to be useful for predicting traits, and some aren't. And right now, we just squash everything together. Um, and that's probably going to make our signal really noisy. I think from my perspective, it's important to just think about how gross the measurements we actually have are when it comes to the nuance of brain function. Um, so something like cortical thickness at the vertex level, you're averaging over thousands and thousands and thousands of cell bodies. Um, if you look at functional network parcellations, you're taking a huge swath of cortex and putatively hypothesizing that that swath has some unified function. Um, so we're, we're doing these sort of really gross estimates. So there's going to be a ceiling on the amount of variance that we can account for. Um, it's also important to consider that we are using, at least in the Merrick paper, they're using field standard approaches that may not be the best approach um, for the future prediction of behavior in subsequent studies. Um, so things like individualized parcellation, um, looking at, um, I mean, Monica and Todd Constable's lab have done some amazing work showing you can boost predictions with uh, movie data relative to rest data, uh, task data relative to rest data. Um, so there's ways to boost your, um, the amount of variance that you're accounting for. Um, I still think we're going to hit a ceiling at some point, and so then the question is, what's the ceiling of the effect size we can actually account for with the methods we use, and what, what's the um, requirement as far as sample size if we're going to make predictions? Um, the, the other point we should probably discuss at, at some point today is that this is referring to predictive analyses. You, you have a totally different set of assumptions if you're looking at the role of specific brain regions in some cognitive or psychological process. Now the sample size requirements are going to be completely different, right? If I want to show that a visual aspect of the visual system responds to a flashing checkerboard, I don't need 2,000 subjects to do that, right? <laughs> I do it in a, in a single individual. Um, right. And so it's important to note that fMRI is a tool. Uh, that tool can be used for multiple functions. Um, and then the expectations about the appropriate study design for each of those functions is going to be heavily contingent on you know, what, what your hypotheses are and what, what you're actually going after. Yeah, that's a definitely a good point for... I think that's uh, a lot of people sort of immediately thought, oh, well, right, you can't even do that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and just, I guess to underscore, like, by predictive, you mean cross-sectional, so from one person predicting yeah. and another person, because you can also do all of these uh, analyses within subjects, and I think, you know, you're in a different domain in that case. Yeah, yeah and I, so I think we could sort of think hard and hypothesize ways to improve our features and our outcome measures, but I think it's an empirical question. Um, and the, the ceiling on predictive power is going to be dictated by the reliability of our predictors and the reliability of our outcome measure. And so I think behavioral research is just as critical, right? Um, identifying uh, reliable trait level measures, um, which not all of our measures are, right? We could do a lot to improve that if we want to predict trait level phenotypes. Um, and then also thinking about the reliability of our fMRI signal. So we know from, you know, lots of work, um, including uh, awesome work from Stephanie Noble at Yale, 
um, that the reliability of individual functional connections is poor, even with lots of data, even with lots of resting state data, um, but the reliability of multivariate patterns is much stronger. And so thinking about like, well, we might not be able to identify reliable relationships without thousands of participants or hundreds of thousands of individuals with like single features and outcome measures that themselves are not that reliable. But if we look at distributed signals, you know, uh, across patterns of connections, we have a much um, better chance of identifying sort of a robust, reliable signal. So I think focusing on the reliability of our input and output measures is critical, and there's lots of ways to do that. Um, but like Avram, I, I also think we're going to run up against some ceiling of predictive power. And so thinking about ways to ask whether our, um, the relationships we identify, even if they don't have a strong effect size, are robust, I think is critical. And one way to do that, as we've been talking about, is replicate in independent data sets. Another way to do that, I think, is to um, ask for, like, right, it's hard enough for Mariah to get a causality, but try and ask this question of, like, what is is there actually a meaningful relationship if we modulate behavior? Do we see an effect on our brain signature that we expect, right? Like if we train people to increase working memory, do they show increase in our signature, you know, that's been associated with working memory? Or if we modulate brain activity or connectivity, maybe with real-time neurofeedback, do we see subsequent effects on behavior? So trying to say, well, if we perturb these measures within subjects? Do we see expected relationships? That also, I think, adds some important evidence that these are associations yeah. are meaningful. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a good point to bring out. That, um, I mean, one area also that I forgot to mention is in terms of the features is, you know, they're looking at resting state. And, and you know, there's many, you would like to think that it could be like something like a, uh, a litmus test or something where you, you, you draw out differences a little bit better rather than just simply, it's like doing a cardiac, you know, like cardiac stress tests. You know, you have to push the heart to actually see the pathology. Um, if you actually can drive the brain in some way to pull that out. I mean, it seems like you can get pretty far with that. Uh, once again, it may not, it might help, but it, it might not, you know, dramatically increase things, but it might, would help for very specific hypotheses as far as that's concerned. And right, there's naturalistic viewing of movies. There's, you know, all kinds of things that could be developed in order to draw out very specific differences. So, Peter, I just want to pick up a question, and I think, Monica, you had a great uh, suggestion on this, is sort of specific hypotheses or exact hypotheses versus brain-wide search and, and data-driven studies. So, I mean, you, you guys all know this. There's two kind of philosophies to discover things. One is you have a hypothesis that you can either confirm or disconfirm, and then there wouldn't be, you know, thousands and thousands of tests across the brain. And then, you know, in, in gene discovery, or for that matter, in brain system discovery, there might be a data-driven search. So I think the Marek paper, and I think, Peter, you, you acknowledge this, they did a great job of saying this is one kind of analysis that a lot of us do. And if you do, and you're searching, you know, eight million voxels or, you know, with a correlated nature of the data, probably more like, uh, you know, a thousand independent tests. Be, be, be careful. If you're in a situation where you have, um, you know, a causal analysis or an intervention that can allow that, then sure, go, go ahead. But if you're better off with a hypothesis or a targeted system and, and you test that. Now, this situation becomes more acute now because we have UK Biobank. We have, you know, thousands of researchers analyzing the same data, maybe testing different things. And I remember Tom Nichols once saying that each researcher, I think he was kind of tongue-in-cheek with us, each 
researchers should have a number of tests they're allowed to do in a certain amount of time. Like, please don't do this 70 paper a year thing and keep it. But it, I think he's making a good point. It's an ironic point, which is we do kind of know this. I think as a brain mapping community, I mean, ever since SPM was developed uh, over 20 years ago. I mean, I, I feel very old at this meeting. I remember these dramas going on about SPM and random field theory, and I mean, maybe Peter, you remember this. I think brain mappers have been extremely careful about using the right uh, tests and safeguards for making inferences from these very complex uh, data sets. And I mean, certainly when you're in a situation where you have a lot of power, doing brain-wide search or you know, throwing into the mix any number of, you know, fantastic number of tests you could do is fine. I think um, Steve Smith and Tom Nichols wrote a nice paper about the UK Biobank where they said, look, UK Biobank measured a lot of things. They, they, and the, there's 10,000 approved applications looking at UK Biobank. So if every one of those using imaging tests a different thing, we'd get a lot of false positives. So I think maybe a salutary note here, and all, all of us kind of know this, is that if we use the correct level of safeguard uh, for our analyses, maybe with a hypothesis or a, an explicit approach that minimizes risk, uh, we're probably going to be okay. But I think, Peter, you said this at the beginning, so long as we advocate for this, in a way that's proactive. We don't risk people you know, being dismissive uh, of the studies, e even if they're small, because they might be small but well-designed or testing something very specific. I mean, just, just to harp on the genetic example, so you, people, have, people have done this uh, sort of a, as a goof, but you, you can take the U UK Biomank data set and basically GWAS every single phenotype they have serially, one after another. Um, there are research groups that have done this. Um, then the question immediately is, okay, well, what's the utility of that approach? Um, you know, it doesn't make any sense that I got some random GWAS hits that pertain to yogurt consumption versus some random hits that pertain to bagel consumption, right? Um, sy Systems-level neuroscience, uh, particularly people that do predictive modeling, it's going to end up in a similar space where we have online platforms. We can download the tools to do these types of analyses. We have massive computing resources. We could build predictive models of every single phenotype in the UK Biobank data set right now if we wanted to. Currently, we could probably publish a ton of that in relatively prestigious outlets, one after another. Um, so the question the field is going to have to tackle pretty quickly is like, what's the actual utility of these approaches? And is there a way to justify this type of analysis in the context where I know I can generate significant findings in this one data set? Um, so what scientifically is the utility of that if I don't push it to other data sets or other modalities? Yeah, so I mean, you could probably speak a little bit, um, you know, speaking to, to GWAS, how, I mean, how, I mean, just, yeah, my, my thought is when I, when I look at GWAS, uh, you know, you see, you know, some gene combination predicts, you know, explains 10% of some variants. How does one uh, properly interpret that? Uh, and, and can you, how can one apply it? I mean, what's the goal? So I, I think just to talk about GWAS, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a genome-wide association study, a little bit like searching the brain. I mean, you search the genome, and there could be you know, up to a million or 10 million possibilities of markers that might associate with uh, the trait that you're measuring. So when we started Enigma, it was started because of this issue. So people were, in about 2011, doing a GWAS in, for example, ADNI. So the ADNI data set at that time had 800 subjects. 
And APOE is a strong risk for Alzheimer's and it also associates with, with hippocampal volume. So I think people are excited that maybe they could discover other things like APOE. I mean, APOE, one haplotype triples your risk for AD. So it'd be really important to find some others that were like that. And then I think it was a little bit salutary. It's like the sort of dark winter of AI where people were initially excited, but then they weren't. And I think the reason was a combination of um, underpowered studies and overstatements of, uh, of genes. Many of you will remember uh, COMT or COMPT uh, was a schizophrenia risk gene and then it wasn't. And then DISC1 was a schizophrenia risk gene and then it wasn't. And then BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, there were polymorphisms in that gene that were very confidently associated with uh, a phenotype. And my daughter, who's in high school, said, Dad, they just told me that uh, monoamine oxidase A polymorphisms are associated with criminality. And when she came home, I said, no, they're not. They're, they're, that's been disproved. So I think, Peter, you, you've made a very important point. Things that people did in the past that were wrong, they're not always assumed to be wrong by everyone. I mean, my, my daughter was told in high school that this candidate gene is linked with, you know, psychotic and criminal behavior. It's not true, it's subsequently disproved. So what actually happened in the psychiatric genetics community and now in the imaging genetics community is that they set some standards of behavior for these studies where if you are gonna search the whole genome, you may not need to if it's a rare variant like Fragile X, nobody says you have to search the whole genome, but if you do, you set a very, very stringent bar of five times 10 to the minus eight, effectively 0.05 divided by the number of effective variants you're testing, which might be a million, so that ends up with five times 10 to the minus eight. If you need five times 10 to the minus eight as your significance level, and there may be other tricks, I mean, Monica, you suggested a multivariate approach, which is sometimes used, and in that case, you don't need it. If you need that level um, of significance and also a replication sample, you will probably need 10,000. I mean, the psychiatric geneticists uh, have been doing this. You probably need 10,000 people to discover it. And I think, as Evram, you, you, you just said, you can find something cool and then need a much smaller sample to replicate it. I mean, that, that discovery exercise might be helpful to all of us, even if we don't have uh, that, that, that kind of sample. Now, in, in praise of GWAS, because there's some really silly ones that are done, but in praise of GWAS for, for the brain, there has now been discovered through the work of, I mean, Enigma, Charge, Anders Dale's team, Caroline Makovsky, who's uh, presenting at this meeting her, her data, there's been now 500 polymorphisms in the genome that link to some brain trait uh, on MRI. And if you were to assemble them into a polygenic score, you can account for about four or 5% of the variance in, for example, chordate volume, putamen volume. Um, resting state and task-related fMRI are catching up. I mean, they're a little, little bit less heritable, uh, but for structural phenotypes. And I think we could, we, you know, if you were to meet a skeptic saying, what's the point of doing common variant genetics with brain images? You'd say, well, actually, if four to 5% of the variance in structural brain volumes is explainable just using common genotyping. And this isn't in people that are ill, they're people that are healthy. I mean, why, why not do it? I mean, there's every reason to believe that if we carry on, um, and I mean, nobody's saying spend a huge amount of money. I mean, you could use the UK Biobank for this. So I think maybe two sort of take home messages. Something can be really worth doing if it needs a lot of subjects, because the thing that you then discover can be verified by other people and used. I mean, you could use polygenic risk in a study of uh, you know 20 or 100 people, and it could account for 5% of your variance. That would be fantastic. The, the, the other one is, 
I don't want to act like people are callous. I mean, people in psychiatric genetics, I think, Avram, you made this point. Even though there are some silly studies, the majority of the field who's been doing this for a while are, are exceptionally careful not to report false positives. But I still think we have some work to do. I mean, going back to my daughter's high school example, it is still being taught that, um, you know, Strong, long, short variants in the serotonin um, transporter are associated with, um, you know, type A personality uh, in psychiatric genetics. The evidence for that one is right in the middle because there's a lot of back and forth on that one. So I think we have to be comfortable with things that we either believe are true or that there's not enough evidence, or they're right in this middle ground where all of us are kind of helping tilt the evidence one way or the other. And I think some of the, um, you know, let, let's say outrage or discomfort comes from not always being comfortable with nuanced explanations. I mean, for, for a lot of these things, the evidence, and I mean, all of you know this, for your conclusions is either absolutely solid or somewhere on the boundary. And in that situation, it's kind of exciting. I mean, I feel like in the years to come, I mean, some of those questions like the criminality risk gene, they'll go in the sort of trash can and not not be uh, confirmed. Others where we're finding some important um, predictor for recovery or for, for treatment response, we may not have the evidence quite today, but I think collectively through all of us working on these things, we're kind of tilting things towards the evidence being solid. So, I mean, it's a kind of optimistic note for the future. Thank you. I, I, I think that that's really important to keep in mind in thinking about how these um, questions have been approached in other fields. And, and also to like sort of answer Avram's question, I just want to point out that like there's just two big picture ways we would want to predict things from the brain. Right? One is practical, like it would be really useful to know who's going to go on to develop symptoms, who's going to respond better to a certain treatment, um, you know, who will develop a particular clinical syndrome in the future. But the other one is, is theoretical, like understanding just, you know, because we're neuroscientists and psychologists and, and researchers in other fields, we just want to understand how it works. And so I think when we set out to do a study, it can be helpful to keep in mind which of those goals we're prioritizing, right? If we're prioritizing um, just practical prediction outcome, we might um, really care about optimizing our individualized parcellation, collecting that much more, you know, resting state data, applying state-of-the-art preprocessing techniques to get, you know, smaller increases in predictive power, whereas for theoretical questions, it might be enough to say, well, there's a replicable association. Maybe I could increase my predictive power by a small percent variance explained, but this is telling me something about, like, how the underlying circuitry is working. And, of course, those can, you know, you can ask those two questions at the same time, but I think it's just useful to keep in mind that there's different goals and different, you know, members of this community prioritize different goals, and, and I think it could be helpful to be explicit in papers. That also helps with science communication, right? Maybe I identify a, a predictive model that's theoretically meaningful but isn't going to have practical significance in the real world. That is something we should communicate, um, and I think it could reduce this idea of like, oh, people being jerked around of like, oh, we've discovered the answer, and then, oh, now it's a smaller effect than we thought. And so, you know, properly communicating that I think is important. I like these points a lot, but one of the things that it brings up for me, and I'm curious about all of your thoughts on this, is that although we phrase all of this as like brain behavior correlations, brain-wide association studies, and, and the sort of approaches that we're taking are asking these questions like what is the function of this brain region by looking at how that function differs across people and how it relates to this trait that differs across people. But that's only one way to ask that question. There are a lot of other ways to ask that question, and I think 
you know, in cognitive neuroscience, one of the places we really made the biggest advances early on in the visual system and sort of um, understanding category representations is because we don't ask that across people. We ask within a person, what is this doing? And, you know, that's from the theoretical perspective, but I think also from a clinical perspective, a lot of these questions are about what's happening to that person. What happens if I give this person a treatment? How are they going to improve? It's not about how, the, you know, as a group, I can maybe increase the chances a tiny bit of, like, sort of understanding this. That might be valuable, but I think ultimately we want to shift to having that person-centered perspective. I totally agree, and I endorse uh, Katerina's deep <laughs> imaging um, special issue of Current Opinion and Behavioral Sciences. It's a really excellent series of articles on this topic. And I'll also plug a commentary that I recently published with uh, my colleague Emily Finn at Dartmouth called How to Establish Robust brain behavior relationships without thousands of individuals. And that's one of the points that we highlight is that we could start off with this individual differences approach, but ask whether these individual differences associations are also related within subjects. So for example, our functional connectivity networks that predict individual differences in attentional state varying as somebody's own attention fluctuates from moment to moment, or as somebody, you know, is just resting versus um, has taken, you know, a drug that changes their attentional state. Just to jump in on the utility of small effect sizes, um, so just to use the GWAS example again, you, you can find an incredibly small amount of variance in a specific genetic marker, um, so it's one positional variation among the entire genome, that then gives you clues about the underlying biological cascades. And so you could find a gene, that, a SNP that loads on a gene that's related to immune system functioning and its relevance to schizophrenia, um, as the uh, PGC did in 2015, whenever the GWAS came out, um, that can start an entire um, cascade of uh, associated research studies to follow up on that one specific finding, even though that particular SNP is an incredibly small amount of the variance. Um, you can see the same thing in functional imaging. If you find a marker that accounts for a small amount of variance, you can look at underlying cell types, you can look at developmental cascades, it can open up windows to look across scales at other um, biological processes that might underlie that, the functioning of that particular system. So, so what would be an example of something that has a small amount of variance, like uh, as far as under um, So, uh, I mean, my, my lab does a lot of work looking at unipolar depression, schizophrenia, um, uh, finding imaging markers that might predict the presence of a particular disorder. Um, those case control analyses are really subtle when you push, push them into large samples. Um, so Kevin Anderson, a former grad student in my lab, has done this in major depression. Um, looking at consistent uh, anatomical and functional variability and trying to uh, map it onto underlying cell type distributions um, and expression markers in the brain. So you could take those really subtle samples and look at an underlying biological process. And then those cell types are much more amenable for intervention, treatment, um, developmental studies, and so forth. Um, so I, I wouldn't, because an effect size is small, that doesn't mean it's not useful. Right. Um, and I think the um, Merrick paper authors made this point in their prior podcast. Um, Things like uh, lead exposure and I IQ uh, effects, uh, hypertension and heart disease. Um, there's a million public health applications where it's relatively subtle effects that can have huge po um, population consequences across a broader society. Um, so just because an effect is small, it doesn't mean it's meaningless or not clinically relevant. It just means we have to consider that when we um, design our studies to do analyses. Right? Maybe just a super quick follow-up, Evram, to your comment. So a small effect that's very important to know the answer to is does the Alzheimer's drug, uh, aducanumab, remove amyloid from the brain? 
and does it slow cognitive decline? And if you ask neurologists, they'll have vehemently defended positions on this from yes, it's great, no, it isn't, or somewhere in between. So I, I want to pick up, Peter, something that you said. What if that drug only works well in some kinds of people? Probably true. So I think as brain mappers, we could say, look, what do we do in this situation? There's something that's really important to know the answer to. PET scans or amyloid-sensitive PET scans look promising, but the effect is really small. Maybe we can then take this forward. Maybe we can say, well, look, maybe this only um, is useful if you have a certain genetic makeup or certain risk factors, or maybe it works better in people of certain ancestry. So I think it's almost the most exciting kind of question when something's really important, but the evidence is right there in the middle. And if you think of the amount of um, you know, people's uh, you know, suffering and life experiences that depend on there being a drug for Alzheimer's disease, I bet nearly every one of those clinical trials is going to have a very, very slight effect. So I think, you know, if we think about this in a detached way, these cases and handling them well, you know, looking at methods, you know, can we subtype uh, the disease? Can we subtype the cognitive process? Can we be clever about modeling? It often can be sort of, a, a li I don't want to belabor it, but a sort of life or death or life altering situation uh, uh, situation that, that people are in, that any one of us here can contribute to, to uh, providing a solution. I also think when you see the networks after, you know, 2,000 subjects and looking at the difference, and, and what comes through is, you know, by definition, the, 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 the most common thing, it's hard to know, to infer that that's necessarily the, you know, the, the most important uh, measure uh, as well. It could, it could very well be other things that sort of, you know, are beneath the the sensitivity in some sense. Um, so just to go back really quickly, I'm just trying to think of examples of, let's say, I think Ravi Menon did this, found differences in ocular dominance columns between people with amblyopia versus not. And you know, there's no way in the world if you average a thousand subjects with amblyopia versus not, you would see this at all, just because of the fact that we can't, we, we can't quite normalize at that level yet, because the variance is, is not accounted for. And so there's sort of a principle there in some sense that there's features that, that you know, might be uh, below our resolution, uh, you know, we're somehow missing or that, that are averaged away in some regard. And, and so is there a different way, is there maybe a, a potentially better way of deciding, I mean, you have a lot of subjects and if you could really, really well characterize them and maybe have deep imaging of uh, of subject populations, you know, do them over and over again. And uh, is there a chance that there could be some sort of um, an iterative process of finding features and then and then exploring in some sort of way and something? I mean, you, you've obviously uh, written a lot on that as well. So yeah, I mean, I think there are many of us that are sort of thinking about that. And I thought what was interesting about some of the points you all were making is like the other direction, right? You start with the big data and then you bring it down to these smaller studies. But I think you could easily go, you know, the upward direction. You start with focus study, you start on a population, a group that you know has like the very extreme form of something that you're interested in. And you look in detail and, you know, what I think is really nice about that is you can look at a single person and really convince yourself that it's like there again and again over time. And then you can use that and broaden out to the general population and ask how often does that happen? Is this like a template I can use to improve sort of data mining and these other data sets? And I think that's going to be a pretty promising technique. It's an approach, we haven't used it for brain behavior correlations per se in the lab, but generally an approach that we've used of like testing first within a deep data set to convince ourselves of a certain property and then trying to bring that to say the Human Connected Project or other big, uh, bigger data sets in that approach. 
I'm just going to share a really a, a little anecdote on this point, which I think is potentially telling and, and is inspiring some ongoing work in, in my lab. Um, so some of the work that we do uses functional connectivity patterns to predict attention function. And so we you know, identified a pattern of functional connections that predicts individual differences in attention and then applied that pattern to um, each session from a data set collected from the same individual. There was 30 sessions that characterized that person's changes in attention from one day to the next. So then we got a really amazing comment from a reviewer, and I wonder who the reviewer was. It was a great comment that said, well, what if you just built a model on that single participant? And it was like a participant-specific predictive model. It turns out that model wasn't better at predicting that person's day-to-day -day attention changes than the, the group-defined model. So I think there certainly are benefits of these individualized kind of approaches, but they, you know, for sort of spatially smooth measures like the connections or the cortical thickness measures we're looking at, um, they, they might be sort of glossed over. That's just sort of an interesting anecdote that I think is relevant to this discussion. One of the points that um, we were chatting about before the, um, before the podcast started was the, um, well, partly that it's gonna, it might be a boring discussion because we tend to all agree on similar points. Uh, and and the, the point that sparked that is that there is no uniform recommendation for all analyses. Um, so I, I think part of the online, um, the strong response to the Merck paper online is that people took it as a general rule for how to do functional imaging analyses or structural imaging analyses. Um, there is no general rule. It's going to depend on your hypothesis, your questions, the populations you're working with, the, you know, the aims of your study. Um, do you do a deep phenotyping um, longitudinal study in an individual, or do you need thousands of people cross-sectionally? Well, it completely depends on your hypothesis, right? Um, and so I think one of the important things to keep in mind in this discussion is that there are a million ways to look at brain functioning. Um, all of them are correct. Uh, all, of them are, all of them are also incorrect. <laughs> it, just, it depends on the goals of your study and your hypotheses, right? Yeah, so would you, um, so then, then thinking about large databases, from this paper, uh, probably groups will say, oh, um, now we need to collect, you know, 10,000 subjects for, you know, we need to get a new pool of uh, a population of 10,000 subjects. Would, would you re necessarily recommend that? I mean, if you were like a, you know, a funding agency or something and trying to figure out how to best place your money <laughs> in terms of having the highest impact uh, towards either understanding the brain or you know, ultimately clinical applications. I mean, I might, I might hedge my bets and say, well, if you do a large population, like really, I mean, obviously like the UK Biobank is doing in some sense, like really characterize them well, so you can go back and keep on uh, reanalyzing this data and maybe have some deep uh, multi-session, you know, do you know, some cohort very deeply as well. Uh, but I don't know, what do you think? My advice would be diversify your portfolio. Yeah. Um, don't put it all in Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, you need both, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm interested in um, imaging genetic hybrid type of studies that go across multiple scales. I need large samples to do that type of work. Um, um, we have other folks in the lab that are really interested in specific, carefully curated phenotypes. They don't need huge samples. They can do that in relatively small samples that we collect in the lab. Um, you need both to make progress in science. And so if... If I was giving advice to a funding agency, it would be diversify your portfolio and you yeah. can put money into both. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's not clear uh, what will really necessarily provide. I, I totally agree, and I think if we only have these large consortia, we risk getting stuck in, in local minimum of, of sort of not exploring really interesting theoretical questions that we might have. So one example is Hyung Song in my, in my lab, who's here um, and presenting her work tomorrow, um, is interested in 
cognitive and attentional state changes within participants. And you can use big open data sets to ask this kind of question, but she's collected data where people do tasks and watch movies that are engaging and not so engaging and kind of boring, and they rest and they do lots of different things, so you're sort of better sampling the suite of states that people tend to cycle through in their everyday lives to characterize these state changes that you might sort of miss or, or they wouldn't be captured in these open data sets which just by their nature need to focus on states and tasks that are gonna be the most useful to the most number of people, but not necessarily the best suited for every theoretical question. Yeah, and I'm kind of a, uh, you know, I, my tendency is to you know, scan a few subjects with a very specific question and then see how it works. I mean, and certainly, and also if you really want clinical applications, you want to be able to, you know, for instance, you can imagine the clinical applications of fMRI, like either uh, localizing uh, networks that might be useful for neuromodulation or neurofeedback. I mean, there's some, a session on neurofeedback here. That's potentially useful. Uh, uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, other sort of modulations that you could do as stress tests to, to see some sort of symptom or something like that within individual subjects. So that's very sensitive, and, and that might be a, also a very useful thing to keep on trying. It would be great to have more fMRI in the clinic so people could try this more. So. Yes, this is a huge benefit of data sharing, open neuro, and also sort of funding intervention studies. So. Um, Taylor Chambered in my lab, who's also here, um, has done some work with a data set on open neuro where the original authors did a pharmacological intervention. So they gave participants propofol. Like you can't do a, a, a propofol um, data set with 10,000 people. It's just at least in the current time, you know, not feasible um, in terms of time and money. Um, but it's a really useful test of like if you modulate the system, do you see expected effects on brain and behavior? And so I think, yeah, those kinds of studies, which are just going to be limited by their nature, are really useful, and we shouldn't, you know, stop doing them. The, the yeah. other point that was alluded to um, uh, earlier is we, we need variability in the types of measures we're collecting. Um, I mean, if you kind of blur your vision and look across the field, you'll see there are about like five tasks people use in functional MRI. There's not a lot of variability in the types of measures we apply, and there's even less when you look at, as Monica was saying, you look at those sort of large-scale consortia. Um, so I, I love the tasks they've selected, I think they're wonderful, but they're only a small subset of the possible ways humans can express behavior. Um, yeah. And you need smaller studies in order to understand the sort of nuanced relationships across all the types of behavioral phenotypes humans can express uh, uh, out in the real world. Um, you won't get that through large-scale data sets alone. Um, you won't even know where to begin with that question through large-scale data sets alone. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I have to state my own bias here. We, you know, we have been working with large data sets, but in every case, what was key was the people. It was not the, it was the diversity of ideas, it was some clever insight into the problem. An analogy would be, you know, let's say you want to become a good chess player, and you say, look, I bought all the chess pieces in the world and they're in my bedroom. I, am I a good chess player yet? Well, no, you, the way you would do it is by playing a lot of chess. And as brain mappers, we work with a lot of people. We get good ideas from, from each other. And I, I'm not being in, in, entirely trite. I mean, it, it, there was a challenge discussed yesterday on finding biomarkers for autism. And there's about three approaches that people are taking. One is collect a lot of data. So many of you here are collecting data from kids with autism. That's a very good idea. Uh, Gail Verico uh, hosted a challenge at Mackay where machine learning uh, folks tried to discover a, a biomarker. That's one approach. Lots of very intelligent people working in AI. The other one, going back to targeted hypothesis, is people studying copy number variants in the genome that uh, lead to autism 
and maybe there's a mechanistic uh, clue in that type of genetic approach. And each one of those three types of approach, you know, big data, you know, big AI, you know, targeted. I mean, I think, Peter, you, you, you mentioned funders. I mean, I think we're lucky for the most part in having funders that respect diversity, but at least in my own opinion, and many of you here have contributed to these studies, what matters was not the amount of data, but uh, the amount and diversity of people. And uh, if you look at some of the major problems that have been solved in the last uh, few years in science, like automatic language translation, a huge number of people were thinking about that, and some were linguists, some of them were AI people, and others were collecting a lot of data on paired languages. And any one of those three alone would not have figured it out. But now, I mean, I, I can speak to a, a translation app and it'll translate it into Chinese or someone's Chinese and so forth. So it seems like three things are required. Large data, diversity of opinion, and very inclusive uh, respect of approaches that are, are being used. And for the hardest, pro for the easier problems, you don't need all of those, but for the hardest problems, it seems like you do. And I feel like everyone here is, is doing the right thing. I also think that uh, uh, we, we talked a little bit about not modulations over time, but even like longitudinal studies, I mean, comparing even large groups of subjects, I mean, I was trying to think of a, of, a, of an experiment where, you know, it's sort of a toy experiment where you, you can imagine a large group of subjects and uh, they're changing over time. And I think there was a paper just came out uh, from the UK Biobank with looking at COVID effects. And there they were comparing the subjects to themselves uh, and they saw huge, hugely significant, you know, largely significant effects where I imagine if they tried to do a cohort of patients with COVID or who experienced COVID versus those that didn't, they probably would see much less because you know there's something, there's some power to you know comparing with yourself over time. So um, yeah, so there's many different applications. So I'm gonna, I think at this point in time, uh, you know, with less than a half hour to go, uh, I think we're gonna open it up to if, questions. Is there anything in this discussion uh, that we may have, uh, that you would like to ask about uh, with regard to fMRI or, or uh, BWAS studies or this paper or anything else uh, re related to either big data sets or, or individual subject data sets. If, uh, all right, well, here's, here's a number of them. Uh, I'll, I'll just go with the, the most upvoted one as long as it's not a crazy question. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, uh, so this is for Paul. Uh, are you ever concerned that some Enigma findings are due to having too much power and thus no clinical relevance. <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't too, too much power. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I kind of know, know what you're talking about. And maybe, Evram, it goes back to, to your, your point, you know, if everyone did a genome-wide association study of every, every trait. And I think we have to be a little bit careful. I mean, if, if people are doing, you know, salting the earth with uh, hypotheses, tests and things like that, I mean, there'll be all kinds of things that come up that may either not be well validated or may not matter. I mean, you know, in the end, we should be only doing things that that matter. But uh, I don't know, I, I think most questions we're looking at are sort of still in the middle ground, aren't they? I mean, we're very rarely having too much power to answer the question that we that we care about. And even if we've got to stage one, I mean, let's say you're studying a disease and you've you know, pretty convincingly mapped the effect of the disease 
let's say you have enough power that nobody's going to dispute that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's affect certain parts of the brain with a lot of atrophy. There's still a second tier of questions that are often more important. So, you know, what are the modulators? What are the things, I mean, Peter, you just said this, what are the things that if you have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's might alleviate the disease? And these are second order questions, statistical interactions or things that might matter that you never quite seem to have enough power for at the moment. I mean, you either need more samples or cleverer design or more people looking at them. So I feel like, you know, the spirit of the question is well taken. We shouldn't, you know, just for the hell of it, look at gigantic data sets where there's enormous power and assume that the things that we conclude are, are either important or, or well validated. But I feel like, you know, for 99% of the things that we care about, we're in this middle zone where we, uh, I mean, you know, when you write a grant, you say, I have just enough power to do this. And for good reason, the funders aren't going to give you more money than you need to answer the question. So I think for that reason, most of us have a lot of questions we'd like to answer that we're not quite there yet. And maybe in the coming years, there'll be extra expertise, data, or, or clever uh, approaches that, that can uh, address them. So, so I made a joke earlier about doing GWAS of yogurt consumption. Um, I actually, um, I'm going to take that back now and say I actually feel like a lot of these uh, analyses are actually quite important, particularly uh, in the context of sort of large-scale data sets like the UK Biomank, ones that seem like they don't matter initially, um, in part because we don't really understand the web of interrelated phenotypes at the behavioral level. So how are um, societal and cultural factors can sort of bias people to express a host of related behaviors simultaneously? Um, if you take those correlated behaviors and you start to do analyses of how they relate to brain function, you're going to find some things that appear to be spurious and uninteresting phenomenon, like um, whether or not I go to cupcake shops um, is going to be related to whether or not I live in an urban area, which is going to be related to the types of pollutants I'm inhaling, which can affect my brain biology. Um, so a lot of these seemingly sort of small and unimportant and sort of silly findings can actually have remarkable significance if we begin to tease apart the relationship at the phenotypic level um, how things hangs to, hang together. Um, and the other point I just, I mean, same, same point I made before, small effect sizes matter. Um, just to take the sort of hypertension, heart disease, or lead exposure, IQ drop um, relationship. Um, just because you have a large sample and you find a small effect, it doesn't mean it's not biologically significant. Um, the trick is, with, actually I'll make a Spider-Man reference. <laughs> so with great power comes great responsibility. Um, you have to be careful that you have some hypotheses related to the underlying biology when you're doing analyses because it's true that you can find significant findings in large-scale data sets. Um, so you have to be very careful going in, knowing that's part of, um, part of the lay of the land when working with large-scale data um, and being careful that you run analyses that are based on an actual sort of theoretical hypothesis about brain function. So this is a... Uh, uh... I, we already went over this question for the most part. Um, you know, why such results led to, uh, to question the power of neuroimaging fMRI rather than the power of phenotyping? Um, that's a good question. I mean, that's still, we, we mostly talked about it, but I do think that there are better ways potentially for, for phenotyping uh, that we might be missing. I mean, there, it may not be a, a problem with, I mean, there might, there's, there's a lot more we can do in terms of phenotyping, I think, so. Can I say real quick, uh, one of the things that surprised me online was the reaction to the types of phenotypes that are available in these large-scale consortia, as though the field didn't create the phenotypes that are used in the large-scale <laughs> consortia. <laughs> um, so we can always improve our phenotypes. It's true they lack reliability in a lot of ways. There's some basic issues with the types of data we collect. So if you look at measures of impulsivity, behavioral measures often don't correlate with self-report measures, even though they theoretically tap into the same constructs. Probably something we should address as a field. 
Um, but the types of phenotypes in these large-scale data sets were selected primarily because they were the sort of cutting edge at the point when the consortia were developed. Um, and so, yeah, one of the things that I always found to be a bit mystifying about the response is it was, a, it was an attack on those large-scale consortia, um, in part because I think people were threatened because they, at least at the um, level of social media, didn't understand the implications of the study. Um, but I think a lot of the attacks they levied were sort of misguided in many ways because it's the very same groups that created the phenotypes that then those large-scale consortia use. I, I might sort of add to that. I love that point because I think we, we sometimes it tends to get lost as we try to figure out how to fix like the problem that's in the field. But it's not like the consortia set out to do a bad study. It's well-designed. It's designed to sort of maximize what can be gotten out of that data set, both in terms of the phenotypes and in terms of the fMRI. And, I think it's just a, you know, it's a fact of the matter that there's going to be compromises on one side or the other. The other thing that I think we've sort of skirted around but maybe not touched on super directly is like this issue of reliability as well, which I, you know, it's something that I thought a lot about and cared a lot about in terms of the fMRI side and, and also on the behavioral side. And I think one of the interesting things that is kind of buried in the supplement of the Merrick taper is that um, reliability almost certainly matters, and they show that maximizing reliability of the measures might give you about two times the size of effects as they actually got, which is great. That would be better, but it's not, you know, going to answer the question completely. Um, and interestingly, when you dig into it, also, you know, they got structural MRI and functional MRI and, and did the same analyses for both. Structural MRI has amazing reliability, but it did worse at predicting many of these phenotypes than did functional MRI. And similarly, a lot of these sort of self-report measures are really very carefully designed to sort of maximize reliability issues and sort of think about that. And we don't often do that as much in our cognitive tasks. Uh, and those are the ones that tend to suffer from reliability. And yet those were the ones that actually predicted better in this data set. So obviously, I think, you know, it's a point a lot of us think about, but it's going to have to be a marriage between reliability and the validity of these measures sort of matching up the functional measure to, to sort of pick up on the thing that you want it to pick up on. And I think we have a way to go on both. Okay, so what are your suggestions for how to design tasks for big data sets? So we, we talked a little bit about this more, but, but it's worth uh, talking a little bit about more. For example, do you think uh, a, uh, a new data uh, should try to reuse uh, human connectome project tasks for the sake of validation or try out different tasks that are less validated in the field? Is there, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think certainly we should, we should continue developing tasks uh, uh, for like what we were just saying in terms of validity or replicability or, or, or how much, how well they, they pull apart uh, differences in subjects, but, but interested in what you have to say about this as well. It's a... I think, you know, for these big data sets, as Katarina mentioned, they, they did a good study. They set out to do a good study. Yeah. They didn't yeah. try and pick tasks or behavioral measures that wouldn't be useful. They tried to sort of balance the validity of the task with the utility to the most number of research groups and the, and the research questions that are most, that the consortium is like going after first. Um, and so I think, again, this just speaks to the benefit of, of sort of single lab or smaller studies, which is where you can try to do task development, see if you get consistent kinds of consistent effects that you're interested in, and then those validated tasks can be deployed in these large studies. I think it would be pretty risky, although, like, I love attention and love attention tasks. It would be risky to deploy a totally new task that hasn't been validated in a 10,000-person study without, you know, lots of development in smaller studies. So I think it, it makes sense to use validated tasks. Um, although I think the kinds of tasks that are getting validated, like naturalistic tasks, 
are you know, slowly changing over time, and maybe those kinds of new tasks that are new right now will be validated over the next several years and can be included in sort of future large-scale data sets. For, for independent labs, if you're trying to select a task, um, I guess the question is sort of like, would you use a task that's in the HCP or would you design your own measure? That's not to be a broken record. That's once again going to depend on your study goals. If you want to collapse data sets to leverage the large-scale samples in a particular population, then it might make sense to select a very similar task battery. Um, if you don't have that goal, then it makes sense not to select a similar task battery and maybe maximize the phenotypes you're going after to fit you with your particular study questions. Um, so once again, it's going to be not a single solution for all research groups. Rather, your specific study goals are going to dictate what the best practice is. Okay. We have a question. Oh, great. All right. Thank you. I, I bit the you know, bullet. I said, okay, I'm going to go this time. Um, thank you very much. This is very, very eye-opening and amazing. But I just wanted to bring some of the things together that I've heard in other talks, as well as my own experiences, and of course, being here after two years in person. So um, big data and all these big studies in the past two years, I'm sure all of you have seen um, in the literature, things that have kind of seeped from public health. And um, what do you think are the variables that we need to tell junior scientists to collect in smaller studies that we have learned in the past two years that are really important for clinical impact? Because even in grant writing now, we're seeing things like, what does the patient want? How do you get user feedback? How are you going to give back to the community in terms of what you're studying? And fMRI is, you know, it's, it's close to my heart. I love it. But at the same time, we need to make sure that it has some kind of really big clinical impact. And, you know, Paul is, I have to say this, is amazing at working at, um, you know, LMIC, low middle income countries, and really working on um, coming up with results that can be uh, spread across the globe. One of the things that I've noticed is when I see papers like superagers, you know, uh, and, they're, and they're coming from countries like Iceland, and they have amazing healthcare systems, and they have um, wonderful ways of lifestyle, eating, and all of the, are we collecting these variables? Are we looking at income status? Are we looking at these things that can affect the brain? Because we know it does. So how do we tell our, all of us, not just junior scientists, me, tell them what are the variables that we should be collecting and how we can analyze them in a fashion that the public can understand? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um, that kind of goes beyond even fMRI, but uh, do you wanna, any of you want to take a crack at this? Uh, this is, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. Um, <laughs> one of the ones that um, folks in my lab have been particularly um, uh, concerned about, and have, uh, we have a paper under review basically advocating for this at this point, is we do a terrible job of collecting detailed demographic information on, this, on the samples we look at. Uh, culture, race, ethnicity, uh, sex, gender, there's basic variables that don't get reported in most functional imaging studies. Um, those data then get uploaded to NIMH repositories, NIH repositories that downloaded, reused over and over again. Uh, we're missing a key opportunity to understand how demographic features, basic demographic features, relate to the types of phenotypes uh, we're interested in. Um, and it's, we exclude massive 
numbers of uh, marginalized, minoritized populations from our studies. Uh, and it, uh, the analyses are kind of blind to that fact just because we're not even collecting the demographics that would let us look at that uh, in, in our analyses. So basic level, collect demographics and report them in your papers. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, I really like your question. I mean, if one of the questions you're interested in is looking at health outcomes and you're using neuroimaging, other biomarkers, things that are happening to your cohort. And many, many of you are designing studies like this. You care about the health of the participants and you really want to make sure you've collected things that matter and would be, would be predictive. I think we're learning a lot, I think, Evram, as you, you've said, from uh, more diverse studies. I mean, studies that are in cultures that are not traditionally assessed. I mean, we, we have a new project, uh, as, as you know, in, in India, where it's looking at aging and health outcomes there. And initially, we wrote the grant to look at genetics, and the reviewers quite rightly said, look, that, that isn't the main thing. I mean, there's all sorts of things like access to healthcare and you know, different environmental variables. Um, one of our colleagues, Lawrence Hellman, is leading the Enigma Environment Initiative and it's sort of the antidote to the genetics that we've been doing for a long time where it's a whole lot of fun. You can link your scans using geocoding. Many of you were not the first to do this. Many of you are familiar with this. Using geocoding to environmental information on not just you know, climate and pollution and toxins, but also other databases on accessibility of healthcare. Yes. I mean, if you live in Los Angeles, you could live in an area that is uh, a lot of adversity. And I think you make such an important point. I mean, if we look at the things we're used to analyzing, like genetics, things like that, I mean, you could totally miss the point about what's important for, for the health. So I think one thing we're learning in population neuroscience is that you know, some of these studies that are looking at environmental factors, adversity, access, and, and even looking in different populations to be sure that the things that matter to more diverse populations are included. Um, I mean, that seems like it's going to be a really fruitful line uh, of research right now and, and in the future. I guess I would add also that I, I think this is a really important question, and I think it also sort of speaks to some of the themes I've seen in talks here at HBM pointing out that while it's amazing that we have some of these consortia data sets coming out, we're at a risk of like overfitting to these specific data sets, which don't necessarily broadly sample the population. So I don't think we can stop here, basically. We need to address these issues. We need to get a broader population. We need to get sort of more, more consortia studies, as expensive as that would be, or at least more studies that sample more people. I mean, just to take an extreme example, the UK of is an amazing data set. It's built to be a population-based based data set of, the, um, of um, people in the United Kingdom. It, it discoveries from those data are then generalized to the global population, right? Uh, and so the demographics in England do not correspond to the demographics globally, um, which then presents all host of issues that um, we have to consider when we have funding in some countries to collect these large-scale imaging data sets and genetic data sets. How can we do that in a way that allows us to generalize our findings across the globe? Um, and it might mean collecting unbalanced samples for a particular population in a, a particular country if we want to generalize those data then to other, in other contexts. Right. I mean, there's many things we're potentially missing and many, yeah, many insights as far as variability is, as well. So um, I will answer, ask one more question here and then, and then have some wrap-up questions. Um, right. I guess the one question uh, related to... Uh, um, how will this affect pharma involvement in neuroimaging? Uh, Tom Insel seemed downbeat, downbeat about uh, GWAS. Would he? What would he be about VWAS? I think. Um, I think he. I think right. He understands the, the use of, of uh, both GWAS and VWAS, but he also understands it's a, it's a wider problem as far as neuro neuropsychiatric disorders. But yeah, I think. What do you think? I mean, I don't think that this would really affect uh, pharma 
uh, this, these sort of results, this sort of reality. Personally, I think that they're uh, watching fMRI and, and looking for results and, and just waiting for something that's uh, more tractable, uh, in my sense. And, I might be dating myself, but there used to be a much larger pharma investment in imaging studies. Yes. Um, and they scaled it back. Um, so I don't know if they're going <laughs> to... They've, they've already scaled it back. <laughs> Everything's scaled back. And I, and I do... Uh, I think that there's uh, some trend of looking at specific drug effects, and it's potentially... Uh, you know, right. To so the extent that they see useful results, they'll, they'll move in. So... So that's kind of interesting. So along those lines, and maybe to, to start to wrap up in our last eight minutes, so where do you see this going as far as uh, all the fMRI studies? Do you, do you actually see fMRI being something in the clinic and, and maybe from these large data sets, you know, biomarkers or whatever, somehow with multivariates or, or machine learning analysis, you can actually have something that's like a template that you can actually do a diagnosis with a subject in the scanner. Um, will that happen? Do you think that will happen? Uh, or will it morph into some, you know, more of a deeper understanding of, of the brain and variability, but uh, the clinical applications might be more along the lines of pre-surgical mapping or finding neuromodulation targets or looking at specific interventions in individual subjects, but never really finding uh, the neuropsychiatric biomarkers that we're hoping to find. Uh, at least in terms of populations. But maybe the biomarkers are in, you know, the interventions of, of a modulation with intervention or something like that. But what do you think? 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I, I think there's more promise on the latter side currently, just in terms of, I think we already are using it for neurosurgical planning. And certainly if I needed to have brain surgery, I would like to be stuck in the fMRI <laughs> for many days in a row and try to get my map as exactly right as we can, and I think with TMS and DBS, I think there's a lot of promise moving in that direction. So I think, I'm hopeful that that's gonna start to be something that we see more immediately, and I don't think that's a small thing. I think that's a big thing for many people. Um, I'm, I guess I, fMRI is expensive, so I think it's gonna be, I'm, I'm curious of all of your thoughts on like, I don't know how immediately we're gonna see sort of translation to this is like a test you take, um, you know, every time you go in and you think you might have symptoms for a certain disorder and I'm going to go ahead and order up uh, an fMRI measure, but, but maybe if we get there with enough variance explained and improving the techniques, but, but what do you all think? <laughs> I totally agree that I think right now there's sort of more promise on the within subject mapping side of things, and then I think just for these kinds of individual differences type predictors to be implemented in the clinic, they need to have population level validity. Um, so there's a great review article in Nature Neuroscience in, in 2017, the first author is Wani Wu, um, about different kinds of validity of these markers and population level validity is required for this kind of clinical um, like translation to the clinic. I think Katerina brings up a really good point that fMRI is expensive, so we would have to have many markers that are valid for an fMRI scan to be worth it because it becomes worth it when it starts to cost less than administering thousands of tests that would take like many, many days. If you could get those all from a single scan, that's when it starts to become like efficient in terms of time and money. Um, and then we also have to have a really good understanding of what the imaging predictor adds over and above other predictors. Like if you could predict future outcomes of a patient from a behavioral measure or a clinical assessment, then it's like fMRI, if fMRI is not adding unique predictive power, it's not going to be translated to the clinic. So I think those all need to be considered. 
you know, before it will be implemented. And I don't, you know, I can't, I don't know where I would put my money in terms of how this will turn out, just that, like, those things all need to be considered before it, I think, will be added to the clinic. Um, so, so I'm of two minds on this matter, so I'll start on the sort of positive side first. Um, I'm old, I've been around for a while. Um, I, I was incredibly excited when people started publishing replicable predictive analyses with functional imaging. Um, I, I don't think the younger folks in the, in, the, um, in the field really understand how groundbreaking it is that I can take a large-scale data set and predict with some degree of certainty of any phenotype that you want to point at it, and then I can replicate that model in another large-scale data set. And you can quibble over, is it 2% of the variance or is it 5% of the variance, and why does that matter at all? 15 years ago, none of that was possible, right? And so we made remarkable strides in at least demonstrating that there's reliable signals in the brain that we can use to predict a certain amount of variance when it comes to behavior. Um, depressing side for me, I don't think we're gonna use that clinically uh, in the way that a lot of people um, have, have hoped. Um, and so my, my hope is that we can develop predictive models that allow us to put someone in the scanner and decide if they're gonna be vulnerable for major depression versus bipolar disorder, which I can then use to recommend different treatment, um, so pharmacological, treatments for that particular patient, right? Um, I don't know if we're ever gonna get to that point. Um, part of the reason that I got interested in coupling imaging with genetics and now imaging with gene transcriptional studies is I think what it does allow you to do though is to link across multiple scales. Um, and so something like getting genome-wide data on an individual is incredibly affordable now relative to historic standards. If I can link that genetic data up with some profile of brain function, understand how those genes bias developmental processes, then that allows us to come up with interventions targeting that particular individual and sort of in a proximal way their functional network structures, um, even if I don't actually put that individual in the scanner. Um, so for me, I see the long-term benefit as being much more of a, this is a intermediate step, one level in a biological cascade that we can target, um, even if we don't use that specific level when we analyze an individual patient. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a, that's a, is sort of using it as a bridge to something that is, you know, more tractable or more doable or easier, whatever. That's, yeah, that's excellent. I, I feel like, Peter, we should all make some predictions for 10 years and then open the time capsule. I mean, I, I just want to echo, everyone, what you just said. I'm just phenomenally optimistic. I mean, when we were grad students, which was a while ago, a lot of the psychiatric imaging studies were just kind of chaotic. I mean, there were some real pioneers, but I mean, the, if you were studying schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, I mean, people just didn't agree at all on what the correlates were. I think now, as you said, I mean, people are having the disorder subtype. There's clear evidence of whether a treatment is shifting those biomarkers or not. I mean, particularly with understanding of the systems that, that are involved. Jumping across to, um, you know, neurosurgical planning, I mean, many of you are involved in cortical mapping for neurosurgery. The Telerac lecturer is, is you know, giving these mind-blowing examples of uh, treatments that are guided uh, by imaging, I mean, even by the results of particular studies. And I think all of us, you know, our minds are blown at how phenomenally promising they are for disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's that we thought were completely uh, intractable. So I feel like there's two branches. One is pure 
discovery, is understanding the brain. And you can think, I mean, Peter, you remember with fMRI when you were pioneering that in the early days and just being amazed that it would happen at all. I mean, thinking that there are now, you know, giant communities understanding different disorders with, with those things, I feel like, you know, we should be phenomenally uh, optimistic about it. I think maybe also the link, I mean, going, going back to genetics, the link with genetics and genome-guided dis uh, discovery, a lot of the reasons disorders are difficult to treat is the genomic drivers are not well understood, at least in terms of their effects on the brain. And I mean, we've discussed today many studies that are mapping those, giving us the first hints of those. So um, I, I just feel like it's just such an exciting field to be in. And uh, compared with, I don't know, uh, you're younger than me, Ephraim, I think. Uh, but Peter, when you, when you and I were starting off, our best study was maybe, you know, what, 12 subjects or something like that. And, uh, you know, getting people to be convinced that it was valid. I mean, it's the, the issue of having too much power that we have today. <laughs> they didn't even think of that sort of thing. The one last thing is that imaging will improve. And so we're all acting like, you know, we're just going to collect more data. UK Biobank, Enigma will just consolidate data. But just look at how in the last uh, few years, imaging technology has improved. One area, if you went to ISMRM, is using deep learning and AI to enhance imaging. Or, I mean, Peter, you mentioned using other modalities to enhance imaging. So the imaging we use today, I don't feel like we'll just have more of it in 10 years. We might have different uh, approaches altogether. So I feel like there's sort of uh, uh, nuanced optimism, but also a lot of excitement for all of you folks who are working in brain mapping uh, at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think, I think that... There is a certain amount of nuanced optimism. I like that. Um, and yeah, I think that, that this paper was significant in the sense that it, it made us realize the limitations, the limits, uh, kind of what's lacking, what's not, where to go. It's uh, kind of a, an anchor in some sense. But yeah, I think that with all of us, uh, uh, as we work through this, it's, it's something that uh, uh, it forces us to kind of think a little bit more deeply, a little bit more strategically about how to go about moving forward. And, and yeah, I'd like to thank all of you, uh, Katerina, Avram, Monica, and, and, and uh, Paul. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah, a little bit like too, too late last night. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I'm sure we could, you know, we, did, we could discuss this for another, you know, five hours as well. I mean, there's, there's many things to discuss. And uh, yeah, I think it all has a, has a very bright future. Um, uh, there's no, I don't see any dead ends as far as I can, I'm concerned, so. All right, well, thank you very much. Appreciate you coming, thank you. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Alfie Wine and Jeff Mensch.